I want to talk to you this morning from Luke's Gospel in chapter 18. We're going to begin a series on prayer. And this series really emanates from my vacation. And I want to talk with you for a few minutes about my vacation. Give you some background. I had a wonderful vacation. Enjoyed the time away. It was not only restful, but it was refreshing, for God refreshed me. And he refreshed me in a very significant way, and that's what I want to share with you. I'm a very active person. I live a very active life. I have a very full life. Busy, I like to think I'm productive. I work hard. I'm not afraid of work. Um, my life is full. I'm not much for labels like I used to be. And if I can use a label, many of us know what, and we've heard of the, this, these uh, types of personalities, like a type A personality, you know. I'm one of those kind of people, if there's such really a person. I just like to work. Now you couple that with being in vocational ministry. Where we don't deal in a product, we deal in relationships. We deal in people's lives every day. Day in and day out. And we deal mostly in the brokenness and the hurts and the frustrations of people's lives. What a pastor deals with. I don't recommend pastoral ministry unless you absolutely must do it. And so, being real, real full, real, real busy, real active, real involved, coupling that with ministry and people's lives and being acquainted, I, I really make an effort, most of you are aware of this, to get to know the people in the congregation. I don't know everybody's name. But I'm trying to. I tell people, look, if you introduce yourself to me three times, I work real hard to remember you. So I can call you by your first name. Hopefully by your last name, too. But when you learn people's names, and you learn to recognize them, you learn to speak to them, and then there's that moment where you begin to interact with them. You learn to start learning about them. Learning about their lives. Do you know that takes a tremendous toll on you? Because everybody wants to talk to you about the grief in their life. I don't fault that. Don't misunderstand me. That's just the reality of things. So I'm charging along trying to maintain and keep all this in some semblance of balance. But it's very discouraging when you see marriages in turmoil and husbands leaving families and bailing. Leaders dropping out of ministry and leadership because they've succumbed to sin and temptation. And you can get to the place where you think, what good is this? What are we really accomplishing? Does anybody care? Is anybody listening? Well, I needed a vacation. <laughs> so I was looking forward to my vacation. I got down to the desert. I love the desert during the summer. I love it because everybody else hates it. <laughs> no one else there. It's quiet. Not a lot of traffic. Although more people are moving down there. We noticed a little bit more traffic this year. Essentially, it's just, it's just very peaceful and quiet. The nights are beautiful. We had a very mild July down there. The, you know, it was right after we left when the temperature spiked to 120 plus. We missed all that. It was glorious. God was very gracious. Anyway, we got down there and, and uh, go, 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 go. And all of a sudden, boom, my life comes to an absolute halt. Couple days, I'm laying out by this pool. Nobody there. It's just quiet, laying in the sun, just dozing. So nice. I began to fall into a, a real depression. Got real morose. I felt, began to feel things like um, 
useless. I'm no good. No one likes me. No one listens to me. People just put up with me. And, you know, on and on. You know, anybody ever go through anything like that? Some of you can relate. I mean, I really got into a pity party. I was down there going, mm, <laughs> sucking my thumb. Now, in retrospect, you know, with all that I understand and know about the Bible and about human beings and about God and relationships and all that stuff, I know, now in retrospect, I mean, I can see clearly what the dynamic was going on. I knew then, but I didn't recognize it immediately. When you come from to nothing, man, you hit a wall and a letdown like you can't believe. Well, God used and worked with that letdown, the natural course of events. I was doing nothing. When on one hand is good, on the other hand is dangerous. But he worked through that to bring me to the place where I bought him out, depressed, feeling hopeless, feeling useless, worthless, thinking, <laughs> quit. Quit. And and I'm laying out by the pool, and there's no one there, and, and there's this guy who, who, who's there cleaning the pool. And I'm watching him. <laughs> you know, with a long brush, just wiping down the pool. And I'm thinking, I can do that. <laughs> Promise. So he got over to where I was, and I said, hey, can I ask you a question? He said, yeah. I said, uh, how long have you been cleaning pools? It's not very long, about a year or so. Is that all? Now, he looked to be about my age, so I figured he must have been doing something before that. So I said, what did you do before you cleaned pools? He said, well, he said, I had this business up in L.A., and he said, I got sick of it. I quit. I left everything. I came down here. I bought this little pool cleaning business. Best decision ever made in my life. I said, uh, can you make any money at that? I mean, can you make it? You know, I'm thinking, you've got to have this big operation, you know. He says, oh, yeah, yeah, you can make it. He says, you know how many pools are down here in the desert? I said, oh, yeah. I said, how many, how many pools do you clean? He says, I have 30 clients. 30 clients? He says, yeah, I won't take any more. They call me, they beg me, I just have 30 clients. And here he's going to get a little tank top, shorts, and sandals. <laughs> Not a care in the world. I'm thinking, man. Easy. Leisure. No hassles. Pools don't talk back. As a corollary to this, I mean, I'm thinking ease, 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 you know, lowest common denominator, hide, as a function of where I'm at emotionally at that particular moment. And then on the other hand, I'm, I'm looking at, at all the luxury in the desert. I mean, you never see so many Rolls Royces in your life. I mean, you go through the mall and the parking lot in the mall, Rolls Royce, Rolls Royce, Rolls Royce. Mercedes Benz, 500 SL convertibles. <laughs> the homes. We visited some homes and people down there that uh, are just very, very wealthy. Live on golf courses. I mean, beautiful places. Beautiful places. And I'm going, covet. I mean, I hated it. I hated myself. Oh, you're wicked. Stop this. It's horrible. All of that brought me, it was, was, a, was a part of this process to bring me to the place where I began to see once again 
once again how powerful the temptation is to quit. How powerful the temptation is to succumb to the myth of the greener grass. To give up and to bail. God spoke to me and he said, he said, you know, I I know where you've been. It wasn't a rebuke. It was a refreshing. You've gotten so busy and so active and so concerned and so, in some cases, overwhelmed with people's lives and the hurt and the brokenness in their lives that just as a self-defense mechanism, you began to isolate yourself. Began to isolate yourself. And your counsel to them, though true and biblical, was reduced to platitudes. What's the greatest platitude? Trust God. Is that biblical? Is it true? Is it essential? But when you're in the midst of your grief and pain, when things are coming apart, when you don't see any hope, and someone says, trust God. Does that make it for you? No. You want him to do something. Or you want him to tell you exactly what to do. Give you something substantial. Trust God. Vocational ministry is hazardous to your health. (laughs) So God renewed in me once again. Refreshed in me once again. An intimate understanding of how easy it is. How quickly we can succumb to the temptation to give up. To be drawn off. To be seduced by other things. To be distracted from that which is where we are. Am I making sense? So Zach is back. I don't want to share with you from this parable, this passage in Luke chapter 18 as we begin a series on prayer. I don't know how many messages we'll do on prayer. I, I, I expect quite a few. People are going to start saying, when you start hearing this, when is he going to get off this issue of prayer? And I promise you, you'll hear it. When you start hearing that, that's when we're starting to really get moving. When you're hearing, oh, wasn't that good? Wasn't that good? We need to hear the prayer. You hear all that for a while, and then pretty soon you'll start hearing, when's he going to start doing something else? (laughs) I promise you. Mark my words. That's right, just like grace. When are we going to do something else? Tithing, yeah. When are we going to do something else? All right. I've entitled the message, Why Pray? Why pray? That's a question a lot of people have. Hopefully we're going to address it this morning. Jesus, in this teaching, in this passage, brings the subject of prayer into sharp focus for us, and he does so by using three contrasts. The first one would be the contrast of principle. The second will be the contrast of persons. And the third will be the contrast of practice. And as you follow this line of thought, you'll see how essential, he'll he'll funnel all that down into one essential issue about prayer. Brings it into sharp focus for us. Why pray? Now if you think about this, the purpose of faith What is the purpose of faith? Now somebody's going to remember James, and James says, without faith you cannot please God. True. But that's not really the purpose of faith. What's the purpose of faith? I would submit to you that the purpose of faith is to bring us into direct, personal, and vital contact with God. Without faith, you can't know Him. Without faith, you can't be in touch with Him. Without faith, you cannot be the beneficiary of His grace and mercy and kindness. 
faith is that avenue, is that mechanism, if you will, that brings us into the direct, the personal, and the vital contact with God. Now there's a connection between prayer and faith. And it's essential for us to understand that there is a connection and understand exactly what the connection is. It's vital for us. True prayer is the awareness, first of all, of our neediness. True prayer, before everything else, is the awareness of our neediness. And secondly, it is the acknowledgement of God's adequacy. That's what true prayer is all about, when you think about it. True prayer, now get this, true prayer is faith expressed. True prayer is faith expressed. True prayer is expressing my neediness in God's adequacy. It's not taking anything for granted. It's putting into action, putting into movement on an active way. My faith. True faith is True prayer is faith expressed. For Jesus, when you look at his life, when you read the gospel accounts of his life and ministry, for him, prayer was as necessary as breathing. Is breathing necessary? How many find it necessary to breathe? Regularly. (laughs) Is prayer that necessary for you? Objectively, sure, we'd all agree. But in reality, do we pray like we breathe? Always? Continuously? See, I want to use that analogy because I want you to understand the vital importance of prayer in our life. Because it's going to have a significant bearing on our understanding of our relationship with God. The first contrast is the contrast of principle. He confronts us in verse 1 with an inescapable choice. If you read this with me, verse 1 of chapter 18, Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. What is the inescapable choice? What is the contrast there in verse 1? Who can see it? What are the only two choices you have? Pray or give up. Pray always or you'll give up. If you're not praying always, you're going to give up. I promise you. If you're praying always, you're not going to give up. So we see right off the bat a contrast of principle. Those true principles, those two tr- principles are true. They are inescapable. They are unalterable. There is no other choice. You can't just blow them off and say, eh. The larger larger perspective here, the larger context, I want you to take note of this because it's going to have a bearing on our interpretation and our application. The larger context, when he teaches on on prayer here in this parable in chapter 18, if you go back into chapter 17, beginning at verse 20, he does a teaching on what? The coming of the kingdom of God. You see that? There is a relationship. You say, what's the relationship? Well, I want you to turn over to chapter 21. You're going to see the relationship even more clearly here. In chapter 21, beginning at verse 5, we're not going to read this, I just want to point it out to you. Beginning at verse 5, he does, he teaches what's known as the Olivet Discourse. This is a teaching on the signs of the end of the age. Now you read through that on your own, and you see there are many, many similarities to what we see today. So, So he does this teaching on the end times, on the signs of the end of the age. Now I want you to look at verse 36 of chapter 21. He concludes the teaching... Just like he concludes a teaching in chapter 17 with a teaching on prayer, he concludes this teaching with a teaching on prayer. Prayer is essential. Why? 
Look it. He says, be always on the watch. In other words, don't go to sleep. Be alert. Be aware. Always alert. And what? And pray. Oh, pray. Now, literally, I, I, I looked that up in the Greek. In the Greek, my Greek New Testament. And the word isn't pray. You know what the word is? Beg. <laughs> the translator doesn't have enough guts to put that in. In the English translation. It's begging. The, the idea is petitions. Petitions, supplications. The idea is that you, and, and it's an overstatement of the case in terms of for emphasis. The idea, I believe, is that we stay in the process, that we're vigorous in the process of prayer. Do you follow what I'm saying? It's not that we're just kind of casual, taking it all for granted, just pray when we can and we want to. Be on the alert. You remember when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he took his three closest buddies, Peter, James, and John, up there, and he says, man, I'm in for it. I need you guys to pray with me. And they said, okay. So Jesus goes off the way to pray. What do these guys do? They stay alert and they're praying. They're petitioning, right? What do they do? They went to sleep. What happened when, when the guards came and the crowds came and they took Jesus away? Was it turmoil? And these guys panicked and freaked out and fled, right? They quit. Is there any connection there between their sleeping and their quitting? What would have happened maybe if they'd remained awake for that hour, if they'd prayed with him, and then the crowds had come? What might their response have been then? We're only left to, to wonder. See, the point is, the larger context is, he says, look, I'm coming. I'm coming. Stay awake. Because if you're not awake, and if you're not persevering to the end, you're going to miss me. You're going to miss me. Jesus says, he who perseveres to the end will be saved. There's lots of people asleep today in the church. Lots of people asleep at the switch. You remember the parable of the, of the ten virgins? The five trimmed their lamps and stayed awake and kept watching. And the other ten, you know, kind of just was slack off and, and, and just kind of doing their thing and sleeping. And, and then the, the bridegroom came. The door was shut. And the five who weren't awake and weren't alert missed it. Are you getting what I'm saying? We're going to keep at this. Prayer. That's the larger context. Now, if that's true for the larger context, we can extract the principle from that larger context and we can say that prayer is essential, not just that we stay awake for the coming of Christ, but that prayer is essential in our own life for when he comes to bring us personal deliverance in response to our prayers, in response to our requests, in response to our needs that were there when he shows up. Prayer is not for him. Prayer is for us. To keep us awake and alert and in the process. Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. I've given you the verse, not in its entirety, but it's in your notes. Paul writes there to the church, the same principle. He says... Now, in the most important things, with prayer and petition, with thanksgiving. What? You guys in the back, you're reading your Bibles, huh? Does he say in most things with prayer and petition? In everything. What does Proverbs 3 say? Acknowledge the Lord your God in all of your ways. Everything. In everything, with prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Now, this is not in your notes, but those of you that know the passage from the Bible and and may have turned to it already. What's the alternative? What's the alternative if we are not making our requests to him in everything? 
What's the alternative? What's the first part of verse 6? Anxiety is the alternative. Anxiety is the alternative. Is not anxiety, think about this, is not anxiety a precursor to quitting? Yeah. There's no hope. I'm going down. It's all over. I better cut my loss. I'm out of here. I'm gone. You see, you lose perspective when you're anxious, when you're fearful. And you quit. So to avoid that, what should you do? Pray. Pray. That's right. Now in verse 7, again, this is not in your notes, but those of you who know the verse, know the passage in Philippians 4. Verse 7 says that after you make all these requests known to God, verse 7 says, and God will answer all these requests just as you've asked. What does it say, Jim? And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, all comprehension, the peace of God will what? Guard your heart and your mind. In other words, God may not do what you want (laughs) when you want it, but he's going to do something. He promises that, and that promise is that he's going to come and he's going to bring, if among other things, peace in your life. I just had some peace. I can handle this. He promises that. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17, among other things, when that Paul writes to the church, he said, this is God's will. And he gives us a picture of God's will, and he numbers a number of things. And he's, amongst that, he says, one of those things is, pray continually. This is God's will, that we pray continually. So in the struggles of life, the daily struggles of life, frustrations, it's either pray, or what's the alternative? Quit. Give up. It's either pray or give up. Because life's going to beat you down. Life is going to destroy you. I promise you. You'll end up being a bitter, hard, pessimistic individual. If you're not in contact with God, the vital contact of God with prayer. Life will beat you down. You say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I see all these other people out there. Their lives are full and apparently joyful and full of bliss and prospering. And They're not Christians. They don't have to go to church. I don't see them praying. I don't see them being beaten down. I see them prospering. What are you giving me? If you could live inside them. I mean, you're just kind of looking on the outside. You're looking on the appearances. If you can climb inside that person, if you can, if you can observe them intimately, you know what you'll find? You'll find an inner dis-ease. A fear. Even among the most apparently confident person. It's there. See, how can you say that? This says it. This gives me the confidence. Every single person is alienated. Alienated from God, from himself, from his neighbor, and from his environment. Alienation marks our life. If it didn't, we wouldn't be so concerned, we wouldn't put so much energy, so much money, so much resources into counseling. (laughs) Relationship building. If what I'm saying isn't true, then we wouldn't have to work so hard. (laughs) I mean, things would just kind of be together, flow, you know, no problems, no hassles. Get married, never have another problem. Get married, you're just asking for problems. You're asking for problems that you never, ever dreamed of. I promise you. How many married people will acknowledge that? That's right. You're going. (laughs) 
if you read, if you read some of the major authors and thinkers and philosophers of the last century or so, you read men and women who have written, men and women who have a life, a, a, a presuppositionary position without God, agnostic. They don't have a real relationship with God. They don't have a Christian background. You read their, their works. You know what you'll find? Don't read just to be entertained. Read to find out what are they saying. They write a novel. What are they saying? What's the message? What's the thread that runs through this novel? Why am I reading this? Just to pass the time of day? What's their philosophy? You'll find that those people who are without God, their message is ultimately always pessimistic. Hopeless. They, they, they jab at, at some kind of, of, of something good, but they have nothing. They offer nothing. And it's all, everything is transitory in their writing. It's all illusory. It passes away. Pessimist. Without God. Jesus was right when he said there's only two alternatives. Either you pray or you faint. You pray or you give up. That's it. There's no other alternative. That's the conclusion we come to. We see that in verse 1. The second contrast, it's a multi-fold contrast we find in the story itself. This is the contrast of persons, and, and I want you to read that with me. Jesus goes on, he says, In a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared about men. So he's characterized as a, as a hard-bitten, cold-hearted, um, unyielding, self-centered kind of a judge. He is not part of the regular Jewish judicial system. He is what was known as a robber judge. These were men who were Jewish, who were appointed by the Roman Empire, much as the tax gatherers were appointed by the Romans to extract taxes. And you know how, how loved and appreciated the tax gatherers were in Israel. These robber judges, not much is known about them except that they did exist and that they were very cruel, very cold, very insensitive, and just as selfish as the tax gatherers. And this is apparently one of them. So we have this contrast of persons. We have this old, crusty, cold, insensitive robber judge. And in contrast, you have this widow. Now, what could be more defenseless and poor than a widow, right? Characteristically speaking. So you've got these two people who are in contrast. Jesus paints a picture for us. He goes on and he says, The widow in that town kept coming to the judge with the plea, Grant me justice against my adversary. So she's got an adversary who keeps coming against her, bringing pressure, bringing pressure, bringing pressure. Old snidely whiplash. (laughs) Grant me justice. Grant me satisfaction. Save me from my adversary. And for some time, the judge refused. But finally, he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care about men, yet because this widow keeps bothering me so that she won't eventually wear me out with her coming, he's going to grant her justice. Now, she's crying out for justice. He's unmoved. He doesn't fear God. Therefore, any appeal to what's moral or right or just or true is not going to move him. He could care less about that. He has no regard for men. He doesn't care about men. So therefore, no political pressure can be brought in his life to move him. He's a law unto himself. She's in a hopeless situation. Would you agree? He has no interest in her. She has no money. She can't pay him off. She can't bribe him. Nothing. She's in a hopeless. He says, I don't want anything to do with this gal. I'm not going to help her. Nevertheless, Jesus tells us, she finds a way to get to him by proceeding to make his life utterly miserable. (laughs) The key to moving this unjust judge, the key to his activity on her behalf, is persistent pressure. And again, if you could go back and and read the Greek text and, and understand the nuances in that original language, you would see that when he says, she stop, stop wearing me down, literally battering me down, giving me black eyes. I mean, she was just absolutely aggressive. Anybody know an aggressive woman like that who just is unrelenting? 
Ray, put your hand down back there. That's not... <laughs> I mean, there's a caricature here, isn't there? This woman was unrelenting. She had her teeth sunk into this thing, and she was not going to let go. She was going to have her way. She's going to move this guy, and she does. As a commentary, a sidelight to this, far too many of us resort to that in our own interpersonal relationships to get what we want when we, in the long run, destroy the relationship. Persistent pressure would move him. Now, Jesus says something here. This is key. He says, listen to what the unjust judge says. Now, you're left with a conclusion. You could derive this conclusion. Aha, to get God to move, then I must bring persistent pressure on him. No. Therein lies part of the contrast again. She uses persistent pressure to get the unjust judge to move. Jesus is telling us, in effect, perpetual prayer. Perpetual prayer is the key to the activity of God. Like for the widow, when things appear to be utterly hopeless, when you feel useless and worthless, when pressure is bearing in such that you can no longer stand it and there seems to be no avenue of escape, it's just crashing in, crashing in, crashing in, squeezing you, squeezing you, squeezing you. When there doesn't seem to be any answer at all to those inescapable problems that are confronting you and you're just left with a blank and you're going, oh no, it's all over, it's hopeless. When you're feeling absolutely hopeless and lost, it's all over. There's no answers. We're going down. That's it. That was the situation for the widow. Jesus tells us, he assures us that in those situations, there is hope. There is hope when you feel hopeless. There is, there is a way to the place of power. There is, he says, a solution to that problem. There is an answer. There is relief to the overwhelming pressure. It is available. He says, with me, all things are possible. It is there. And the answer, he tells us, is prayer. The answer is prayer. I know what some of you are thinking right now. I just, I know what you're saying, but... I prayed, and nothing happened. And then what'd you do? I quit. That's the problem. You quit. And the fact that you quit evidence you have no faith. Wait a minute, don't say that to me. That's insulting. I believe in God. Ha! Your belief, your faith, is evidenced by your ongoing, faithful, trusting walk of obedience. It's not just an intellectual exercise. The answer is in prayer. Beloved, I want you to know that we cry out to a God that we cannot see, but upon whom we can rely. He is there. He does care. He does know. He understands more than we even comprehend. He is there. Jesus tells us here, Listen to what the unjust judge says, and will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night, speaks of continually praying? Will he, he says, keep putting them off? 
Jesus tells us that like the unjust judge, there are times when God delays, when he puts us off in terms of a direct and specific answer, the answer that we want. You with me? Does God delay? Sure he does. You remember Mary and Martha? Lazarus? Lazarus, his good buddy, Jesus' good buddy, Mary and Martha, they were tight. They were like family. Jesus is off in another village. Mary and Martha send word, Lazarus, our brother, is dying. Come quickly. <laughs> you would think if, if he's going to come rescue anybody, it would be Lazarus. And sure enough, Jesus comes running. <gasps> wow, I'm glad I got here in time. <laughs> right? What happened? Lazarus died. Why? Jesus delayed. <laughs> Did Jesus know that Lazarus was going to die? He intentionally delayed. <gasps> he intentionally delayed? Yeah. Oh. What does that mean? That means he has his own agenda. It's not like, waiter. <laughs> now. God knows. He knew exactly what was going on with them. What do you think was going on with Mary and Martha those two days while they were waiting and Lazarus was dying? Where is he? Where do you think? What was going on with them? And finally he gets there and they're going, great. Great, now you come. Where were you? If he has gotten here when we called, he would have not died. Calm down, Mary. Calm down, Martha. It's going to be okay. I got everything under control. You see, our little, our little lives, our little issues, our agendas and stuff, God works those, but he works them in a bigger picture. And he's working simultaneously in us. Wasn't he also working in Mary and Martha simultaneously to that whole process? We're not isolated. We're integrated, integrated into a huge, big, awesome plan and purpose that only the infinite, gracious, merciful, all-wise, all-knowing God can work in and through. And finally, when we come to the end of it and we look back, we go, oh, wow. And we still don't see it all. You'll never be able to exhaust the wisdom and the counsel of God and how he works. So Jesus tells us that God, like the unjust judge, will delay. But unlike the unjust judge, he will not delay for unjust reasons. And unlike the unjust judge, God does not require continual battering to get him to move. That's what most of us think. Remember the passage in Luke chapter 11? I got it in your notes. Ask, seek, knock. Remember that? Most of us know it if you've been around the church very long. Ask, seek, knock. And the idea is, keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. And by the way, it's in the mood of command in the Greek, and, and so it's a strong, strong statement. Ask. Remember my little boy was, he was out for soccer and they had to sell candy bars, you know, all the neighbors to get money to raise for the soccer thing. Anybody go through that stuff? Girl Scout cookies, all that stuff. You know. So he came home with his big box of candy bars and said, I got to sell these, all the neighbors. He said, why don't you buy them? <laughs> That's the easy way, right? I said, I ain't buying them. I said, I'll buy one, but I'll buy the last one. He's, I said, I want you to get out in the neighborhood. I want you to go all the doors, knock on the doors, tell them you're doing what you're doing. And we, we rehearsed this little skit and, you know, how he could talk and teaching him how to be a little sales guy. <laughs> so I got it, got it all down. We rehearsed it all. And I, I said, get out there and sell this. <laughs> Ooh, he's mean. <laughs> I did. I pushed him out the door. I said, get out there, sell those candy bars. Don't come back here until all those candy bars are sold. Except for the last one. I'll buy the last one. He went out grumbling, but motivated. <laughs> he came back, all the candy bars were sold, except when I bought the last one. It was all done, one afternoon. 
but I had to command him to go. God commands us to go. He commands us to ask. He commands us to seek. He commands us to knock on the door. But it's not a battering of his door. It's a battering of our door. It's a battering of our door. In Romans chapter 8, verses 26 and 27, Paul reminds us, that's not in your notes, but you can look it up right down the reference. Paul reminds us that often we do not know what or even how to pray. He says, we have a weakness. He says, and the weakness is we don't know what to pray. Anybody find that to be true in your life? I mean, after you pray your little quick rope prayers, you go, come to a blank, I don't know what else to pray. And he says, that's when the Spirit intercedes for us with groans that words can't express. He says, the Spirit knows the mind of God, etc. So we don't know what to pray, but God knows what to pray. God knows what we should pray. God knows our needs, doesn't he, even before we ask? He knows because he is our Father as well as our God. And he also knows when to answer what we've asked. And he also knows if the answer that we've asked is what he should give us. Most of us, at some point or other in our Christian experience, have discovered the blessing of God not giving us what we've asked for. God, thank you for protecting me from my prayers. Oh, give me this, give me this, give me this. God, I want this with all my heart. Oh, God, God, please, please, please. <laughs> you know, and, and then sometime later, you look back and you say, Oh, man, I'm glad I didn't get that. <laughs> God knows, you see. You can always trust him. And he is going to delay. He may delay in the answer that you want, but he's not going to delay in an answer. He says the answer will come quickly. The greater context, his coming, his coming at the end of the age, at the appointed hour will be what? Quickly. The whole world is going to see it. The heavens are going to resound with his glory when he comes back. And it's going to be quick at the appointed hour. The same principle holds true for our own lives in the areas in which we're praying. He may not come with that answer. He may not come with that answer when we want it, when we want it. But he's going to come with an answer. It may be that peace that guards our mind and heart. It may be courage to face the challenge. It may be strength to go through the trial. He wants us to go through that trial. He's not going to deliver us always from the trials. Because the trials build character, the Bible says. He's more interested in our character than in our comfort. We're more interested in our comfort than our character. True? Divine delays do come. Now here it comes. Here it comes. Grab this. If you don't grab anything out of this message. Our continuous prayers... Our keep asking, our keep seeking, our keep knocking, our remaining in Him, our continuous prayers are for us, not for Him. They're for us. For they keep us in the process. They keep us attentive. They keep us aware. They keep us in the process until the answer comes. Otherwise, we might quit and miss the answer. We might quit and miss it. I remember in high school, I played football. And uh, first couple weeks out of practice, I hated it. Hated it. I was never so sore and beat up and black and blue as a freshman kid in high school my whole life. And I came this close to quitting. I'm going to quit this. This is no fun. But something said, stay in there, stay in there, stay in there. Keep, keep going. And, and I, I've, I've not quit anything in my life that I can really think of. And I just persisted. Then, I was ever so glad I didn't quit. You know the best part of playing high school football? Every guy who ever played high school football will agree. The best part of high school football is the pregame warm-up running down the tunnel, out onto the field, through the goalposts, with everybody cheering, and the cheerleaders waving their pom-poms, and everyone, woo, woo, woo. That is the most exhilarating part. That's better than winning a game. The pregame warm-up. The first time I did that, I thought, this is fantastic, and everybody was cheering. 
And I thought to myself, I'd have missed all this if I'd have quit. I'd have missed all this if I'd have quit. I used to look forward to the pre-game warm-up and running. That was my favorite part of football, running out on the field before the game started. And then they had to play the game, of course. (laughs) You see, again, from the greater context, at the appointed hour, Jesus is coming. He's coming quickly. When he, when his timetable comes to fruition, he comes quickly. In In the smaller microcosm of our lives, at the appointed hour, he'll come quickly. Don't quit. So you'll be there. When the answer comes, lest he come and not find you, I have the answer. It's time. Where'd you go? Where'd you go? Tragic, huh? He concludes the parable with this last contrast, the third contrast. This is the contrast of practice. And it's a contrast of practice, his practice and our practice. Real simple. He says... Last part of verse 8. However, mark that word, however. (laughs) It's key. Much hangs on it. However, when the Son of Man comes. Notice it isn't if the Son of Man comes. When the Son of Man. It's sure. He is faithful. When he comes. There's no doubt about it. When he comes, he will find faith on the earth. No? You're in disagreement with me about that? When he comes, he will not find faith on the earth. Is that what it says? No. He doesn't make an, uh, an indicative statement. He, he leaves it up to us in terms of a question. He just hangs this question out there in space. He says, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? What's he saying? He's been talking about what? Prayer, right? And then all of a sudden, he just switches to faith. Did he have a lapse of memory? What's the deal here? No, there's a connection. Remember, what's the connection? True prayer is what? Faith expressed. So he says, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on the earth? What's he saying? When I come back, am I going to find people praying? Am I going to find people persevering? Am I going to find people with me, staying, waiting, watching? What am I going to find when I come back? Because if we're not doing those things, the alternative is what? To quit. You remember the parable in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 13, the sower and the seed? Different kinds of soil, same seed, different effect. When he comes, will he find people persevering in the faith? Remember, God invites us into an intimate, personal, ongoing relationship with him. That one thing which is characteristic of that kind of intimate, personal relationship that we all understand is trust and communication. Essential. Essential. If you have not in your marriage trust and communication, what's the state of your marriage? true we understand that dynamic in this life what about this relationship is there trust in communication prayer ongoing prayer talking with God listening to God spending time having an attitude just like breathing oh this is as natural this is as vital and as important to me as breathing prayer is that my attitude great faith is evidenced by great prayer. Great faith is evidenced by great prayer. You say, I have great faith. Well, let me see it by your great prayer. <laughs> Wait a minute. Jesus said you just needed faith the size of a mustard seed. That didn't seem to me to be very much faith. No, size of a mustard seed, that's great faith. Why? It has great effect, doesn't it? What can faith the size of a mustard seed do? <laughs> Throw a mountain in the, in the sea. That's obviously hyperbole, but the point is you get, you get the idea. 
It's not the quantity of the faith. It's the, the quality of the faith. My faith is real. It's substantial. And I evidence it. I express it in my prayer life. Beloved, if we are only talking about God instead of talking with him, you know what we're giving evidence of? A deteriorating faith. You're only talking about God and you're not talking with him. You can say all day long, I'm a believer. I believe. I love God. But if your life is not marked by continual prayer, your faith And when the day of trouble comes, you'll not stand. You'll quit. You'll quit. I promise you, I promise you, I promise you, I promise you, you can take this to the bank, heaven's bank. If you're truly praying, you'll never quit. You'll never quit. You'll never quit. And the battle will heat up and the enemy will come against you and people will be incited against you. Everything will come crashing in against you, but you're praying you'll never quit. (laughs) And you will see your deliverance. And you will experience the full and the satisfying peace, power, and purpose of God in your life. Amen. Shall we pray? God, thank you for prayer. Thank you for your grace to us. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you, Lord, for the church. Thank you for the privilege of participating in all that you're doing. Lord, we thank you for the new appreciation that some of us have gained this morning for how essential prayer is in our life. Lord, many of us have come close, if not actually quit, in very threatening situations, given up, no hope, We've offered some measure of prayer, but didn't seem to be of any effect. And, and so we quit. We didn't persevere. We were evidencing a weak faith, a deteriorated faith. But Lord, we understand now that you bring trials into our life to build us. That they're the stuff that the life of faith grows on. And we evidence that growing faith by our growing prayer. Bless the church, Father. Bless the church. You know your will for us. You know the way that you're leading us. Cause us, Father, to be sensitive to your spirit. We give you thanks. Keep your heads bowed for just a minute. I want to take one extra minute, just 60 seconds. Some of you this morning don't have a relationship with God. You want to believe in God. You want to believe that all this is true. It'll never happen for you unless you make a decision, just like all the rest of us. Decision to surrender your life to Jesus Christ. That you'd use his name with reverence from now on. That you would honor him and obey him. That you'd serve him. He is God. He died for your sins. Nobody else has done that. God loves you. He wants you to know life and know it to the fullest. But you'll not know that without a relationship with him. It's only he who can heal you, only he who can fill you. I don't know who it is, but I know there are people here this morning. God has already been speaking to you. I'm not here to convince you. I'm just here to to give you an opportunity to respond to his offer. He's already talked to your heart. You know who you are. The opportunity is simply this, that you want to become a Christian. If you want to become a follower, a believer in Jesus Christ, it takes one step. 
a step of faith. You're going to make a decision to believe this morning. You don't have it all down. You don't have it all together. Your life's not all together yet. That's not the issue. The issue is you know that you're needy and you know that God is adequate. You've heard that this morning. I want to pray a prayer right now. A prayer, essentially, of of commitment to Christ. And if you want to pray that with me, I don't want to pray it all by myself. If you want to... You want to know that all your sins are forgiven. That if you were to die this afternoon, you'd go straight to heaven. Absolute assurance. You want that more than anything else right now, then you pray this prayer with me. I'll not make you pray it out loud. You just pray it quietly under your breath, right where you're sitting. But I'm not going to pray it alone. I want to know if there's anybody who wants to pray with me. And so you just signal me. While everybody else's heads are bowed, you can raise your hand. Now it's dark in there. I can't see everybody. So if we, if we don't make eye contact, you look up at me, at least wave at me, get my attention. I'll know that you want to pray. You're saying, yes, Pastor, I want to pray that prayer. Okay, I see your hand. Good. Okay. Back there, I see those two hands. Wonderful. Okay, way in the back. Okay, good. Anybody else? Is that where you're looking up? You want to pray? Okay, look down, please. Anybody else? Okay. Okay, I see your hand. Way back there. Good. Anybody else? Just look up and let's make eye contact if you can. Is that where you're looking at? You want to pray? Good. Feels good, huh? Finally to surrender? Amen. All right. Did I miss anybody? We're just going to pray right now. We don't want to take a lot of time. Okay, I got your hand. Good. Okay, good. I see your hand, sir. Okay, I got your hand back there. Right. Okay. Anybody else? Last time. Just one last sweep of the, the congregation. Don't let this moment pass. God's speaking to your heart. You know all this is true. You know it intuitively. You just know God has confirmed it to you. You want to say yes? Go for it. Go for it right now. Look up. Last time. Anybody else? Okay, let's pray. Those of you who looked up, those of you who waved your hands at me, make this your prayer. God, forgive me. I fully acknowledge I'm a sinner. I've broken every one of your laws. I have no excuse. I'm guilty. Forgive me. I believe this morning, I put my faith in Jesus Christ, that he died for my sins. He took all my punishment, all the guilt that was reserved for me. He took it upon himself that I might go free. I receive your forgiveness forgiveness as a free gift. I believe in Jesus. I believe that he died on the cross. I believe that he rose from the dead three days later to bring me new life. Cause me this morning to be born again. Give me a brand new life, a second chance, a new start. I receive all this by faith. And I give you thanks. And now I can call you Father. And I give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Welcome to the family. Now, real quickly, if you prayed with me, if you prayed with me, then I want you to go back to the prayer room. Tell somebody before you leave here this morning, you know, if not one of the pastors in the prayer room, then somebody maybe you came with, just turn over to them and say, you know, I prayed with the pastor this morning and uh, I became a Christian. Just say that to somebody and then get geared up for baptism next Sunday night. And I also want you to go back to the prayer room. If you came with some friends, they'll wait for you. We want to talk to you in our prayer room right back here in the corner of the uh, auditorium. We want to give you a couple of things that are helpful to you to read, to follow, to understand a little bit more about what you've done this morning in terms of your prayer. Let's all stand and uh, sing God's praises one more time before we dismiss. Let's shout to the Lord. We are His people. He gives us music to sing. There is a sound now like the sound of the Lord when His enemies flee. Shout to the Lord, shout to the Lord.
Shout to the Lord. 